Good morning. Welcome to our online service. I'm so glad you can be a part of this time in God's Word. I'm grateful for the music and the worship we've had together. And now we need to hear from God, especially concerning our relationship with Him. And especially concerning how personal God desires to be with us. And all throughout Scripture, all throughout history, the personal reach of God has become evident through Scripture and even perfected through Jesus, and now through the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of the Word, God continues to reach out, emphasizing how personal He desires to be with us. And so the real question asked, are we as interested in being personal with God as He is with us? A personal life for God. It becomes our focus today as we conclude the teaching series, The Personal. We've discovered that God has taken a personal look into our life, a personal look by God, and we dis discovered that in Psalm 139. We also discovered personal encounters with God as uh, that emphasis located us in Acts chapter 16, and we, uh, we engaged with several personal encounters with God. Also, we've discovered personal worship before God as we were engaged with the life of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. And so today we come to the focus of a personal life for God. And this emphasis locates us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Notice the message and hear the words of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Father God, I pray that you will use your word today to speak to your people, to us, drawing us into a true understanding of how personal our life of faith should be with you. Help our hearts to be open to hear from you and not from man. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said... Amen. From Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, there is before our eyes four very critical issues for the follower of Jesus, for the Christian life. This verse demonstrates clearly, perhaps even more than most other verses we find concerning one's personal walk. This verse displays and, and explains clearly the life of of one personally following Jesus Christ. The emphasis of that personal context really comes to life when we consider who God used to bring these words in a timeless fashion to our lives today. That first century pastor and beloved missionary and church planner, the Apostle Paul, was led by God's hand to make this testimony, to make this declaration, I am crucified with Christ. In that one statement, Paul discounted any notion of compartmentalization and of separation, and he brought all of his life into a right consideration of the Lordship of Jesus over who he was and who he is as a, as a follower of Jesus. And so today I encourage you to consider the danger we sometimes uh, face when we allow our lives to become compartmentalized. 
It was beloved author and pastor Paul Tripp who described the Christian life at times as being placed in different different drawers. In your home right now, there is a drawer for silverware. There is a drawer for socks and on and on the categories become enumerated. Uh, Paul Tripp writes that our Christian life can sometimes fall into two different drawers. One drawer holds our jobs, careers, and relationships, and the other drawer holds all of our spiritual activity, such as church attendance. But then Tripp concludes with this statement about how necessary it becomes to have all of our lives in one drawer. And he writes this, The biblical narrative and worldview has only one drawer, the gospel in everyday life or Jesus in everyday life. So if if your own existence, if your own life as a Christian can be genuinely described as the gospel in everyday life, then perhaps you have fallen, uh, unwittingly or not, to compartmentalization, to different drawers. And so today, uh, this emphasis, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, this this declaration of a personal life for God brings all of our existence together in one place, the gospel lived out daily in our lives. Now let's move to these four critical issues that encourage us in our personal life for God. Each of these issues are obviously found in Galatians chapter 2, Verse 20, and we'll see in verse 21, a grand summary of these issues. So the first critical issue that Galatians 2.20 brings to our attention references the cross. Here again, the opening of Galatians 2, verse 20, for I have been crucified with Christ. Let's pause there. The term crucified comes from that old Greek term, sustureru, which actually indicates a literal crucifixion. Paul uses this term here in a present tense. Now that becomes very important, not just for the sake of grammar, but for the sake of capturing the true meaning of this statement of being crucified with Christ. Now, although I've been crucified sounds past tense, in the original text, the meaning comes to a a perfect tense of the verb crucified. Perfect tense actually means that something happened in the past with with implications all the way up to the present. So when Paul said of being crucified with Christ, certainly he focused on something in his own life that related to a personal encounter with Jesus. But because of the present tense, Paul did not simply stay on that event, but he allowed that event to come all the way to the present. I met Jesus, Paul would say, my faith became placed in what he accomplished on the cross. Therefore, to this very present moment, I consider myself crucified with Christ. So there becomes an obvious, clear, um, metaphoric reference or a symbolic reference to this personal application of the cross applied to our lives as followers of Jesus. So I'd like to share with you a few verses that reinforces the critical issue of the cross concerning our lives personally for God or personally personally following Jesus. Now, go, go with me in your scripture or listen as I read to you from Galatians chapter 5, 
verse 24. We're simply going to move through some scriptures to emphasize the critical issue of the cross. The fact that we should be able to say as well, I'm crucified with Christ. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, uh, this is what we, we read. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To understand the issue of the cross in our own personal walk with Jesus, in our own faith, would first, first be to point to the spiritual reality of who we are in Christ. The spiritual reality represents one who has been crucified, who has considered him or herself as dead to the passions and desires of the flesh. Now, speaking of the tense of the original language, the verb in Galatians 5.24, I've crucified the flesh, or I, I, uh, I've died with Christ and, and I have been crucified in the flesh with, with its passions and desires. The, the verb here is actually a, a simple past tense. The, the Greek uh, language would reference this as an aorist tense. Simple past. So Paul actually said in Galatians 5.24, there was a time when I placed my faith in Jesus and realized then that my whole life became dead, inactive. Uh, referencing the symbolism of the cross, inactive to the former passions and desires of the flesh. So the, the first way that we can embrace the critical issue of the cross, referencing our own walk of faith, would be the spiritual reality. That when our faith becomes placed in Christ, we should have resolved that my former passions and desires are laid to the side because I now belong to Jesus. He becomes my, my ultimate affection. So our response to Jesus does not take place so that we might earn some level of favor with him. Our response becomes a passionate, affectionate response to him. And all other passions and desires are laid to the side. This becomes the spiritual reality. How could one not love he who died for us and canceled out our sin and the devastating blow of sin, ultimately death and complete separation from God. How could one not love he who died in our place so that sin would have no rule and reign over us, bringing that destruction and, and the despair and, and the separation from God's perfect love? And so Paul emphasized, I've been crucified, to note that he had, had died to passions and desires of the flesh. Now let's move to a second verse to help further emphasize this. I turn now to Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with. So second to the spiritual reality of the cross comes a spiritual victory through the cross. Paul said in Romans 6, 6, knowing that our old self was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now this certainly doesn't note any notion of, of perfection morally in this life, but this does signify that there becomes for one who trusts in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross, 
victory over sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin when we truly have received by faith what Christ has done on the cross. And so this brings spiritual victory. So first there is a spiritual reality. Yes, the passions and desires of this world are no longer a testimony of my affection. My affection belongs to Jesus. And so the spiritual reality of the cross references that I've crucified those passions and desires. And then the spiritual victory references that I'm no longer a slave to sin because my heart, my life belongs to Jesus. Now, there's a third verse uh, concerning this critical issue of the cross in our personal life. And that, uh, that third verse would be Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Listen to Galatians 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, notice how the term crucifixion here references something that has taken place between the world and the follower of Jesus as much as between the follower of Jesus and the world. And so this references a spiritual lifestyle from a spiritual reality, simple past tense, I've died to those desires of the flesh, to the spiritual truth of of the fact that we're no longer slaves to sin, spiritual victory, which again was a simple past, we now come to the spiritual lifestyle, which here, again, is not a simple past, but again a present tense, meaning my present way of living, my present way of living out the truth of Jesus comes from the completed past of of having died to passions and desires and, and having seen my life freed from enslavement of sin to this spiritual victory. And so, yes, I've been crucified with Christ announces the critical issue of the cross as this incredible impact of who we are following Jesus. We have we have a spiritual reality, spiritual victory, and a spiritual lifestyle. Who we are is that Christ has conquered has conquered sin in our lives and we are living in that victory as a lifestyle, as who we truly are concerning following Jesus. And so Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who lives. What an incredible statement. So of these four critical issues concerning one's personal life for God, the issue of the cross leads this verse when Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. And I pray that you can say that as well. The cross served almost like an epitaph over Paul's life. Now, the message of epitaphs are very, very powerful. That which people would desire to be written on their tombstone becomes significant concerning how they would see their own life. Uh, Ludolf van Kulen, the Dutch mathematician who first calculated pi, died at the age of 70, of 70 in 1610. And he desired to have this printed on his tombstone. 3.14159265358, and I'll not even continue. This astronomical number representing all of the digits of pi were actually printed on his tombstone so that he would have revealed his chief achievement. Ben Franklin once wrote in his diary 
a desire to have this as his epitaph. Here lies the body of Ben Franklin, a printer, like the cover of an old book. The contents have been torn out. Franklin desired that people would see his life of success as a printer. Uh, more endearingly, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who had this as his epitaph, free at last, free at last. And certainly it was Thomas Jefferson whose epitaph reads in part, author of the Declaration of the Independence. So epitaphs on the tombstone are very important and powerful for they signify the chief identity of the one whose body has been laid there. I, I can hear Paul saying, our epitaph as a follower of Jesus should read, I've been crucified with Christ. That represents no achievement of our own, but the greatest achievement to be done on our behalf. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we can say, I've been crucified with him, symbolically referencing a real truth that I'm dead to sin. That's the spiritual reality. Jesus has conquered sin in my life. That's the spiritual victory. And I live dead to the world and the world dead to me. That's the spiritual lifestyle that's been brought into our lives because of what Jesus has done. So yes, the issue of the cross represents the first critical issue we gain from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Now a second critical issue that we really need to embrace as followers of Jesus concerning our personal life before God now emphasizes testimony. Here another section of Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, Paul had already said, I've been crucified with Christ, but now Paul will say this, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ living supernaturally in me through the Holy Spirit became for Paul the ultimate narrative of his life. Paul's testimony demonstrated Christ in me. His testimony did not resonate only successful church planner or beloved missionary. His ultimate testimony, the true narrative of his life announced Jesus Christ alive in me. Oh, that should demonstrate perfectly the ultimate narrative of all of our lives who follow after Jesus. This becomes a grand display of the genuine, authentic life of one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and has believed that he rose from the dead and has confessed him as Savior and Lord and truly follows him. Perhaps you've never made a decision and have never placed your faith in Christ. Well, you are privileged to have a clear view of life following Jesus. This truly depicts the life of one who follows Jesus, which is why I say emphatically, place your trust in him, receive him today, because the joy is here in what Christ has accomplished for us. But perhaps you have placed your faith in Christ, but your testimony has been anything but the narrative of Christ in me, because other narratives, maybe even false narratives, have been pressed into your life, and you're living by a truth other than Christ in me. Or return to the testimony of who you truly are. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Now there are some verses here to give substance in our own lives concerning testimony. The first I would turn to, turn to would be Romans chapter seven, verse 25. 
This demonstrates the message of deliverance in our testimony. When Paul said, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ in me, Paul gave testimony of a deliverance. Now, proof of this takes us to Romans 7, verse 25. In verse 25, Paul said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, to, to look at this literally, verse 25 of Romans 7 says, it's Jesus. Translated, the answer is Jesus, which prompts for us, then what's the question? Well, the question Paul answered in verse 25 can be found in verses 21 to 24 of Romans 7. Paul said this, I find then the principle that evil presents in me as the one who wants to do good. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Paul would say, I take joy and delight in obeying God's law in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, what a wretched man I am. So Paul made this statement in a very vulnerable and transparent way. I delight in God's law. He referenced the, the Mosaic law, perhaps, the, the Pentateuch, and the, the great Jewish emphasis of obeying God. And as a Pharisee, Paul would say, I delight in God's law. Perhaps you and I today would say, we delight in attending church and worshiping publicly and attempting to read devotionally excerpts from the scripture every day. Paul said, I delight in the law of God. But then Paul noted there is another type of law that was at work in his own life. And this was the law of sin that, that kept his, his mind challenged and kept his body challenged. And Paul cried out, oh, wretched man I am, who would save me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul spoke of his deliverance, not just from sin, but from sin's embattlement against his own desire to do good. Has that ever been your reality? Oh, I desire to do good, but I keep falling to sin. That same thought continues pervasively to come back to my mind, haunting me and reminding me that I fell constantly. Well, if that has been your experience, you can resonate with Paul who said, wretched person I am, who can save me from this seeming protracted duality that exists in my life of desiring the law of God, but the law of sin constantly coming against me. And then Paul cried out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He becomes the answer to this struggle. He becomes the solution to the problem of embattlement against sin. And so Paul, as a part of his testimony, announced, I've been delivered from this struggle. And he announced it in Galatians 2.20 when he said, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul's narrative was no longer a spiritual struggle. His narrative was one in part of I've been delivered. What an incredible narrative. But that doesn't complete his testimony. There's another portion of his testimony I find evidence 
evidenced in the words of Jesus. I turn to John 15, verse 4. And in John chapter 15, verse 4, where Jesus speaks about the vine and the branches, Jesus said this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, that verse resonates content. Jesus said, as you draw from a relationship with me, your life will have the content of my presence with you through the Holy Spirit, much as the vine allows the sap to run through the branch, to give branch, the branch life and fruit. Jesus said, so my presence through the Holy Spirit will be in your life as you abide in me. Well, this became the, the, the proclamation of Paul's word when he said, I it's no longer I who live. It's, it's Jesus through the Holy Spirit bringing, bringing his life, his content in me. So Paul's testimony resonated deliverance and content. The presence of Jesus actively through the Holy Spirit, literally in his own life, bringing the fruits of ministry, bringing the true presence of Christ. What an amazing proclamation. But then there's a third verse I'll read to you concerning uh, the testimony. And this comes from John chapter 3, verse 30, which simply states, it is no longer I who lives through the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I must decrease and what? He must increase. Again, recorded in John chapter 3, verse 30. And so uh, Paul, as a part of his testimony, was about the purpose of decreasing, about the purpose of pushing back so that it would be Jesus who would increase. John the Baptist said, it's not my message that should increase. It's not my reputation as a forerunner or prophet that should increase. It's not the baptisms in the Jordan River that should increase. John said, Jesus, his life, his truth should increase. And all things concerning me should decrease. And this was certainly Paul's testimony. So we see uh, Paul's uh, testimony foreshadowed in John the Baptist's attitude when he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Paul said in these terms the same message. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So the second critical issue of Galatians 2.20 expresses testimony. The true narrative of our life, Paul gave us the perfect narrative to fit our testimony. We've been delivered. There is the presence of Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. We have content. And so we must decrease and he must increase. Have you ever considered that the testimony of who you are as a follower of Jesus is all about the message of Jesus increasing in your life. So when people see you, when they hear you teach, when they receive uh, your, your, uh, your praise leadership, when they hear you directing a small group, the ultimate emphasis would be Jesus increases and I decrease. And so this should become the, the, the frame of all of our testimonies. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. Oh, testimony. I want to read this story to you uh, from the first century, a story about a man whose name is Polycarp. Uh, I believe you'll be encouraged uh, 
by this. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And the year was A.D. 155, and persecution had swept across the Roman Empire and came to the city of Smyrna. The proconsul of Smyrna, uh, swept up in this persecution, put out an order that the bishop, Polycarp, was to be found arrested, brought to the public arena for execution. So they found Polycarp. They brought him before thousands of spectators screaming for blood. But the proconsul had compassion on this man who was almost 100 years of age. He signaled to the crowd to be silent. And to Polycarp, the proconsul said, curse the Christ and live. The crowd waited for the old man to answer in an amazingly strong voice. Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme the name of my king and Lord. And with that, Polycarp became a martyr. And his life was taken because of his relentless commitment to the testimony that he had been delivered. Christ had taken up residence in his life. And oh, how he would not fall back from living for him, but would truly decrease to the ultimate, to the ultimate extreme so that Christ would increase testimony. And there's a third critical issue for the Christian life that comes to us out of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The issue of faith. Now, Paul said, and the life which I now live, again in Galatians 2, 20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul stated clearly that he lived by faith. I'm reminded in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, a prayer that Paul voiced for the church at Ephesus. Paul stated, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be open, may be enlightened, so you'll know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. When I consider that Paul said in Galatians 2.20, and the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, I'm immediately reminded of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Oh, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be open to see what God has done for you. And this demonstrates faith in the following ways. A spiritual perception. Well, this was certainly what Paul prayed for the Ephesus congregation, that they would see spiritually through what Christ had done internally in their lives. Paul prayed that their perception would have one phenomenal filter, and that filter would be the condition of their heart made brand new by Jesus. So Paul prayed that the eyes of their heart would be open, that their perception of all things would be filtered through the spiritual, that they would see based on what Christ had done for them, bringing us to a second definition of 
of true Christian faith, the reality of the gospel. Paul prayed that the eyes of their heart would be open, that they would have spiritual perception so that they would see all things through the reality of the gospel, of what Christ has done. You see, when someone comes against you to offend you, you should see that person through the reality of the gospel, not through your own uh, offense that's been taken. When you face uncertainties in work or with finances or in relationships, your immediate perception should be spiritual and you should look through the reality of what the gospel has indicated concerning Jesus and his work in your heart as you've placed your faith in him. Spiritual perception and the reality of the gospel becomes the frame of one's faith. So when Paul said, this life that I now live, I live by faith, Paul was saying, I live by the spiritual perception of what's happened to me, and I live by the reality of the gospel, that which Christ has accomplished in me. But a third perspective, a third definition of faith in this context would be the substance. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1, faith becomes the evidence of things unseen, the substance of what we hope for. So when Paul said, I pray the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, he prayed that they would know the hope. Faith becomes the substance of our identity with Jesus. So when Paul said, oh, the life I now live, I'm living by faith, Paul was not indicating some flimsy version of attempting to trust God amid the turmoils of life that we as Westerners sometime identify as faith. No, Paul said, my perception is spiritual. My perception builds on the reality of the gospel and the substance of my life references the hope I have in Jesus. And Paul said, that's how I choose to live. That becomes my faith, Paul said. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, faith cries out. Just ask blind Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verse 52 the blind man cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Faith cries out. Faith cries out to Jesus so that he would step in to bring that touch and that change and that deliverance. Have you found yourself crying out to Jesus? I pray you have because faith in part cries out, but faith also quietly rests. In Psalm 46 verse 10, we are told, cease striving and know that I am God. Not only does faith cry out like blind Bartimaeus, but faith also quietly rests. At times we desire to take up arms and to handle our situation as Israel desired to do with, with Israel's many military exploits and strategies. But in Psalm 46 verse 10, God corrected Israel and said, cease all of this, cease striving and just know that I have you. So faith not only cries out, faith quietly rests. But faith also worships. Oh, I love this expression of faith. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, we are told that Paul and Barnabas were praying and singing praises in the Philippian jail, thrown there because they had simply defended the gospel. But inside of those chains and fetters, they did not bemoan nor cry out in anguish. They cried out praises and prayers. They worshiped. Faith worships. And when faith worships Christ our King, then awesome, awesome events can happen. Have you ever considered that faith cries out 
in prayer. Faith quietly rests in meditation upon God's presence in our life through Jesus. And faith worships in our prayer and in our praise so that we might see God doing amazing things. I really believe that at times the church becomes void of God's powerful activity because the church has become void of true prayer and praise. And the reason the church at times becomes void of true prayer and praise is because the church has become very weakened in her faith. You see, faith demonstrates our crying out in prayer, our quietness of resting in God, and our prayer and praise, not simply uh, marked by music or song, but marked by true prayer and praise that cries out and rests in God, desiring to see him move. Yes, I really believe that at times the church becomes void of God's powerful activity is because we've become void of truly prayer and praise and truly living by faith that's demonstrated through our prayers and through our genuine praise. So a third critical issue from Galatians 2.20 expresses faith. Paul said, in the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And then in a final, a final word, moving to verse 21, Paul said this. Paul said, I do not nullify grace. I do not set aside grace because righteousness did not come through the law. If it did, Christ died needlessly. So almost in summary fashion, Paul said, I do not nullify, meaning I do not set aside the grace of God that he has made known through Jesus Christ. And so these issues aforementioned from Galatians 2.20 all build upon this final critical issue. God's grace, his unmerited favor. You see, in, in verse 16 of this same chapter, contextually speaking, Paul made something very personal to his life. In verse 16, Paul said, a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. And then verse 19, Paul makes this truth even more personal when he said, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul came to that strong resolution in his own experience with Jesus that I have died to my attempts of striving to please God through the law because I now have received through Jesus God's grace, his unmerited, his his unearned favor, his love that has been lavishly poured out through the cross, through Jesus, into our lives as by faith we receive his gift of salvation because of the cross, because of Jesus. So the, the, the concluding critical issue expresses grace. All of the others build upon the amazing truth of God's grace, the cross, the testimony, and our faith builds upon the fact that God has given us his unmerited favor, his love through Jesus Christ. And this indeed resonates. <laughs> the powerful announcement of grace. This becomes the reason Paul said on several occasions to the first century church, I pray that you'll grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord 
He did not simply signify that we would grow in our understanding of, of basic tenets of theology. No, to grow in the grace references growing in the experience of living daily dependent upon God's grace, which becomes the fuel, the motivation, and the drive to live for him in our personal lives. So this becomes a perfect demonstration of one's personal life for God. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It was that great Renaissance artist, Michelangelo, known for his statue of David in the incredible Sistine Chapel, who made this statement in a poem that became mounted in a museum in Italy, the Duomo Museum in Florence. And this poem, one line from this poem, depicted Michelangelo's life and his experience with God's grace through Jesus, through Jesus at the very end of his life's journey on earth. You see, Michelangelo had to confess that of all of his works, his his artistry had become his idol and his God. But at the end of the day, he realized his only hope was not in what he would achieve and what he would receive and acclaim. But I quote from his poem, his greatest reality was the divine love to embrace us that embraced us through open arms on the cross. That became his reality. Thankfully, before he left this life, he embraced the truth of the open arms of Christ. And I pray that you've embraced that truth as well by placing your faith in Jesus. I pray that you can say, I've been crucified with him, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And if you can't say that, would you place your faith in Jesus now? Would you simply say, Jesus, I trust you. I confess my sins. I need you. I need what you did on the cross to forgive me and I place my life into your hands, and I desire to live for you. Oh, if you pray that, then I would love to have some conversation with you. There's a website location coming up on the screen, and please reach out, and we will have conversation with you. We will walk you through the truth of what it truly means to follow Jesus and to trust him as our Lord and Savior. And if you know Jesus, live out the right narrative. You've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer you who live, but Christ in you, and you live by faith in the Son of God, who loves you and gave himself up for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us through this series, The Personal, and thank you for our personal life for you. Help us to truly live out the right narrative of our life. Thank you, God, for this truth. And we praise you for your love and grace made known through Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us. Be here next week. We begin a study in the small gospel of Mark, a phenomenal story, study and story of the gospel of Jesus Christ titled Forward. We will move forward through understanding how Jesus moved from birth to the resurrection and gave us the model for how we should follow him and how we should live. I look forward to this study with you. God bless. 